The truth for this time, the third angel's message, stop for just a moment. You see those words set off with commas? The third angel's message set off with commas before and after? Any grammarians tell me what kind of a construction that is? That would work, but it's a particular kind of those. Nobody really into English here so much, huh? And it's, a, it's a, an appositive. And an appositive is a non-essential interruption that renames what was just named. Okay? So what she's saying is, the truth for this time, which is the third angel's message, okay, that's, that's, that's the effect of that appositive construction right there, okay? The truth for this time, the third angel's message, is to be proclaimed with a loud voice, meaning with increasing power. Now, I spoke this morning about power and sometimes the lack thereof, right? How are we going to do this thing? You know, I mean, seriously. You're talking about trying to arrest the attention of Seven billion people. How's that going to happen? You know, even if the Ebola thing gets out of hand and 50% of us die, that's still three and a half billion people. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I've always thought that, you know, taking the gospel all the world would be a lot easier if the population were brought down to about 10 million or so, but I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm just thinking it would be easier to take the gospel that way. But how are you going to do that? You know, okay. Increasing power, she says, as we approach the great final test. This test, this great final test, must come to the churches in connection with the true dot, dot, dot. Now, if you happen to know this statement, inside out, upside down, or backwards, you know what the next words are going to be. If you know of a certainty what the next words are, please be quiet right now. If you're just looking at this kind of for the first time and you're saying, well, I wonder what that would be. Now then, you're the ones who can speak, okay? So what do you think the great final test must come to the churches in connection with? This would be the interactive portion of the discussion here, so... Witness, that's good. The day of worship, otherwise known specifically as the Sabbath. Okay, Sabbath is probably the idea that you know, Adventists would certainly probably dwell most on. But it's not the Sabbath. That's not what this statement says. It is. Did you know that, or did you guess that? <laughs> Good for you. With the true medical missionary work, a work that has the great physician to dictate and preside in all it comprehends. Now that's a really puzzling statement, and I've, I've, I've wrestled with that statement, or pondered it, I think the first time I ran into that, I can still remember, I was writing an article, and it was 1987. So not quite 30 years I've been working on this statement. And my ideas have changed over time somewhat, but it's interesting. I, I think I'm closer to having a, a more complete understanding of it now than I was 30 years ago type of thing. <clears throat> but we would normally expect the Sabbath to be the great final test. And, you know, actually the statement... This is something, this, this thing we're talking about here, medical mission work, is in connection with the great final test. So I think the Sabbath is still very much core, okay? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, okay, after all this time, we don't need to worry about it. I'm not saying that, okay? <laughs> the Sabbath is still significant, okay? But it's must, the test on the Sabbath, the test on the three angels' messages, the test on everything that's incorporated and involved in that, must come to the churches in connection with true medical missionary work. It's kind of like the statement we saw this morning. It says, this must be done, I, I don't have it memorized, so I'm not sure I'm going to quote it rightly, but this must be done in connection with healing with the body, right? Remember that statement this morning we had? This, this must be done, hmm, I don't know if it said in connection, but, but 
with healing of the body. There's, there is a dual role of the evangelistic and the medical. And this is why Ellen White said, you know, when the medical workers and the evangelistic workers are not united, it places the worst evil on the church. Okay? Um, not going to go into that at great length, but I'll just give you a, a 25 cent explanation of what I think the worst evil is. My guess, I won't be dogmatic about this, but my guess is that the worst evil that's placed on the churches when the medical and the evangelistic work are not united, I think the worst evil is thinking, perhaps for your entire life. You know, I mean, it's been 110 years since she wrote that. So a lot of people have born, lived, and died their entire life during that time span. And I would guess that the vast majority of them, Seventh-day Adventists, were doing good works, whatever, and thinking that what they were doing was going to someday culminate in the Second Coming. When the fact is, there's no possible way. The Second Coming requires this dual... Uh, related thrust. It's an absolute requirement for all sorts of reasons. And so I think perhaps the worst evil is thinking all your life that you're doing something that's going to result in a given end when in fact you're not. It's not to say that it doesn't result in some good. Again, you know, during that 110 years, it's not to say that everybody's lost or that nobody was converted or you know, anything like that. I think that, no, I think that all happened. Just kind of like, you know, there were some good things that happened during the 40 years in the wilderness, too, you know. But it didn't get him into the promised land. Okay. <clears throat> now, here it talks about medical missionary work. And just to be honest, medical missionary work is just another title for Christian service. Okay. I almost wish we had never taken up the phrase medical missionary work. That wasn't an Adventist phrase. That was imported into Adventism from other sources. My one problem with that phrase is that it, it, in most people's minds, it places undue emphasis on formal medical practice and skills. Okay? Medical missionary work, as used by the Spirit of Prophecy, is a very, very broad. And I like to say, you know, it... it it's everything from raking leaves in some little old lady's yard when she's you know, too, too unsteady on her feet to get out there. That's medical missionary work. Before we picked up that phrase, the first, the first time that shows up, by the way, in Adventist publications was 1893. And before that, we had other names for it. We called it Christian help work, which means Christians helping people, right? And sometimes we called it the benevolent work, which just means being nice to people. And sometimes we call it Christian service. So it's really all the same thing, at least in my book. Anyhow, okay, let's go on. Now, how tightly entwined is medical missionary work or Christian help work or Christian service with the Sabbath? And I would argue that it is inextricably intertwined. For a number of reasons. But skipping all the reasons right now, I don't want to take the time. <laughs> Let's just go to a proof text method. How's that? Okay? This statement We cannot keep the Sabbath holy unless we serve the Lord in the manner brought to view in the scripture, colon, what scripture do you think she's going to quote? I think I heard it. Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burns, let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry, that you bring the poor or cast out to your house? When you see the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from your own flesh. This is the work that rests upon every soul who accepts the service of Christ. Now, I think we have suffered as a denomination, as, as individuals, from losing the simplicity and the reality of that last sentence. 
we've, I don't know when it happened or how it happened, but you know, that sort of thing, the Dorcas ladies do that. You know, really? Aren't they the ones who are supposed to do that? No, actually, we're all supposed to. <laughs> um, and, and go back to the, the gray section up above, you know. In the Lord's sight, we, there, there's no way you can keep the Sabbath holy if you're not living like Christ lived, basically, you know. Yeah, one thing that's always puzzled me, we talk about the commandment, you know, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And somehow we always get sidetracked with, with you know, four-letter words and things like that. And we think that's taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I, I don't think so. I mean, maybe it is, but what about saying I'm a Christian but not living like one? Isn't that taking his name in vain? You know, I, I, I really, I don't know, to my mind, that's the stronger application of the verse. But anyhow, <clears throat> okay. Um, so, the great final test. Well, in order to understand the great final test, we have to go back and catch a little history first. So we'll start off with a couple of pictures. On the left, um, actually they're both. Um, those are both pictures of the uh, burning of the sanitarium. I usually put one of those up along with a picture of the burned down Review and Herald building, but those are both the sanitarium. The sanitarium burned to the ground in Battle Creek on February 18, 1902. And um, I always like to tell a story. I've probably told this story here before, so forgive me if it's a rerun for you, but you know. Uh, it, was, it was miraculous. I, I really think it was miraculous because they didn't have central heat and air in those days, and so they had these ventilation shafts that were just a, a, a hollow shaft that went all the way up through the structure, right? And the fire very quickly got into two of those, and so it was spreading on all six floors at once type of thing, okay? They had a 1,000 patients in that building. Most of them were ambulatory, which no doubt helped, but in a very short period of time, they got everybody out of the building. It was remarkable. They got every single one of those patients out of that building. Only one person died in the fire. And I don't know his name. And it's probably heartless of me to make fun of him the way I do. But along with all the other patients, he was evacuated from the building taken across the street to McCamley Park and was standing in the snow along with everybody else watching it burn, when all of a sudden, those standing nearby heard him gasp and he said, ah! My mattress! And he went running back into the building. He had one of those really expensive sleep number beds. <laughs> no, he didn't actually. <laughs> What was so important about his mattress? Well, like a lot of people back in the day, he had stuffed his mattress with his life savings and his stocks and bonds. And it was everything that was intended to support him for the rest of his life. And the good news is that it did. <laughs> it didn't do much for his widow, I don't suppose, but it, you know, it took care of him as long as he lived. Anyhow, <clears throat> going on. So out of this fire circumstance, Dr. Kellogg was now needing to rebuild the sanitarium. It had only been about 35% covered by insurance, which was a pretty hefty loss. Kellogg had just been working on a book, and he came up with the idea. He said, why don't I donate this book? We'll get the Review and Herald to print it for free. We'll get Seventh-day Adventist church members to sell it without taking a, a commission or anything. And all the profits will go as one great contribution from the church to help rebuild the sanitarium. And that seems like a pretty good idea. And so Kellogg came up with a book. It's pretty dark. It's hard to see. Uh, you may be able to read. The title there is The Living Temple. Long story about this book, and I don't want to take the time to tell it all, it uh, was reviewed by a general conference executive committee. They couldn't decide what to do. They appointed a subcommittee. The subcommittee studied the book. Three of them came back and said, it's a wonderful book. One of them came back and he says, it's the most dangerous book I've ever seen in my life. I hope it never, you know, never touches an Adventist press. 
And so there was a big argument and a big fight on the executive committee. And finally, the church said, you know, we're not going to deal with this book. Kellogg had, quote unquote, rewritten the objectionable portions about four times. But every time he rewrote them, he subtly managed to say the same thing in different words, um, which was vintage Kellogg. He loved to tweak people's noses. And right about this point, he was really kind of annoyed with some of these guys. And so he was kind of you know, tweaking them on the nose. Um, so the church said, no, we're not going to print this book. Kellogg didn't see that as being that big of an issue. And so he took his manuscript and he walked around from, from the general conference offices. He walked around the corner to the largest printing press west of the Mississippi. And he asked them, he said, would you print my book? And they said, sure, no problem. Now, this was 1902. Any guesses what the largest printing press west of the Mississippi might have been? I'm sure you've heard of it. It was a little place called the Review and Herald. <laughs> he simply took it to them as a private job instead of as a general conference job. He says, okay, fine, I'll get the book printed. And they were happy to print it because they were happy to, you know, get the job to keep the presses running, right? You know, you got lots of big presses, you got to have work to work, work to do. So the book was all prepared and the printing plates were sitting on the floor of the press room on December 31, 1902. And that's the night that the Review and Herald burnt down. So there might be a lesson in there that we won't dwell on at this point, but anyhow. Okay, eventually though, Kellogg took his manuscript again after that and he went to the nearest non-Adventist printing place and he actually got the book printed. So that's a, a copy of it there. I've never seen a copy of the book in actual life, and I've never read it, and I recommend that you don't. Um, but that's the book. This is an infamous, notorious book within Adventist circles, at least up until recent years, um, because, as Ellen White and others pointed out, the book contains what we might call pantheism. Today we're fussier and you know, we're more edumacated, so we have nifty new titles. So um, it, we would now call it panentheism as opposed to pantheism, which is a very subtle and minor distinction. Uh, pantheism says that God is the universe, the universe is God. And panentheism says the universe is God, but there's some small part of God that's not the universe. Okay, whatever. Anyhow, um, so Ellen White wrote some things about the book. To me, it seems passing strange that some who have been long in the work of God cannot discern the character of the teaching in living, living temple in regard to God. The book taught pantheism, which is the idea that God is in everything, everything is part of God, okay? Um, there are problems with that point of view. It's, it's making a definition that is beyond the ability of human beings to accurately define. Um, and when we make faulty definitions, we come up with, with wrong conclusions out of them. The idea that everything is God and God is everything would mean that God is equally dwelling in the life and heart of the worst sinner of the world as much as the best saint in the church type of thing. Um, along with puppy dogs, walruses, and dandelions. You know. So... Um, it's kind of a weird idea. It's basically Hinduism, uh, pretty much is, is what it is, okay? Well, another comment here, she said, I thought that the problems in living temple would surely be discerned, that it would not be necessary for me to say anything about it, but since the claim has been made that the teachings of this book can be sustained by statements from my writings, I am compelled to speak in denial of this claim. Kellogg came along and said, well, this is the same thing that she said. She wrote the same stuff 
couple of years back in this book or this Review and Herald article or, or whatever. I don't know exactly where he was pointing. And she said, I did not. <laughs> I know what I wrote. Don't try to tell me that I wrote that or that I said the same thing as that. And if you're understanding what I wrote to mean the same thing as what you wrote, you're wrong. Because what I wrote does not mean what you wrote. Okay? And she was very clear that there was no uh, ambiguity as to this particular truth. Okay? <laughs> no pluralism going on with this particular job. Okay, well, out of this we get some important statements. Kellogg's pantheism, Ellen White, describes as being the alpha of apostasy. I'm, I'm sorry if this is all very old hat to some of you. I'm, I'm sure it must be. But some of you probably are not particularly familiar with this. So, you know, if, if you are, just bear with us a little bit here. She says, I was instructed that certain sentiments in Living Temple were the alpha of a long list of deceptive theories. Okay, alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Okay, the Greek alphabet, alpha, beta, gimel, ain, right, okay? Alpha, beta, that's where we get our word alphabet, okay? Just the first two letters. So the alpha is the first or the Living Temple contains the, the alpha of a long list of deceptive theories. A long list. This is the first of a long list of deceptive theories. She talks about these different theories, different times. She talks about pantheism, theosophy, spiritualism. Um, seems like there's one other on that list. I can't think of what it is right now. Um, she says this is the... This is, this statement doesn't say it so much. But it's pretty close. She says, in another statement, she says that the, the, the book Living Temple contains the alpha of apostasy. Well, that's an important statement because it, it, it pretty well nails down that this alpha of apostasy that she's talking about is an intangible, like a conceptual thing that's it's in this book, right? It can't be a puppy dog because you can't, you know, package a puppy dog in a book. Okay, so it's, it's not a tangible thing. It's an intangible concept. Okay, going on. She did not, um, she didn't have a lot of appreciation for this. Okay, let's put it that way, mildly. She says that we need not the mysticism that is in this book. She's talking about the living temple. Those who entertain these sophistries will soon find themselves in a position where the enemy can talk with them and lead them away from God. Now, what is mysticism? Does anybody have a definition or a concept of what mysticism is? It's a word we've used for centuries. And it's not the most well-defined word. I'll just be honest. You, some of the dictionaries and things kind of struggle with trying to figure out exactly what to say this word means. Mysticism, as best I can kind of wrestle the word down, Mysticism is the belief and practice that I as an individual can at my will and bidding have direct contact with God. It's a little bit like, I mean superficially, it sounds a little bit like a profound religious experience where a person may indeed have you know, a, a, a deep personal contact with God. There's a right place for that. It sounds a little bit like the gift of prophecy almost, where an individual is receiving instruction from God, and there's certainly a good place for that. But mysticism takes those two ideas and says, I can control them. There are practices which if I follow, I can virtually guarantee that I will have this contact with God. That's a new package. And I would argue that anytime you walk into that sort of mindset and you start saying basically, I'm in charge of what the Holy Spirit does, and I'm in charge of how God communicates with me, I'm, I'm going to suggest you are on dangerous, dangerous ground. 
Like she says in the statement, they will find themselves in a position where the enemy can talk with them. If you think that you can set the ground rules for how God works with you, you will probably get somebody to talk to you. But I don't think it's going to be anybody I'd want to be talking with. Now, what makes this important, of course, is that Ellen White contrasted with the Alpha something else that she referred to as the Omega. Now, the Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet down at the other end. So you got the Alpha, and you got the Omega. She says, Be not deceived, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We have now before us the Alpha of this danger. The Omega will be of a most startling nature. Uh, well, I'm sorry, the reference will come just a moment here. Be not deceived. Many will depart from the faith. I think that's a serious issue. She's saying that the devil's going to win a lot on this one. Many will depart from the faith. Well, okay, as it works out, well, let's see, maybe I can get, I'll go to the one more statement here. Yeah, we'll go to the. In the book, Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning that God has given. And then we go on a little bit more here. Living Temple contains the alpha of these theories. I knew that the omega would follow in a little while, and I trembled for our people. And the Living Temple contains the alpha of a train of heresies. Now... Okay, all this was written in about 1904. And as you might guess, immediately people began to wonder what the Omega was. And different ideas were propounded. In 1907, when Dr. Kellogg took legal control of the Battle Creek Sanitarium, the newly rebuilt Battle Creek Sanitarium, away from the control of the Adventist Church, some people said, ah, that's the Omega right there. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> if for no other reason than the Omega is the last apostasy, it's, it's at the end. You know, like Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. In the context of these kind of statements, uh, the Omega is at the end of time. And so, you know, 1907, losing the sanitarium, eh, it doesn't really cut it anymore, okay? Maybe, uh, you know, maybe for a few months that might have seemed like that was the very end of, the, of Satan's, you know, heresies and apostasies and, and all that sort of stuff, but, you know, it's, it's, it's long past by now. Time went on, and over the next several decades, different authors said different things about the Alpha and the Omega. <clears throat> and one of the concepts which came up and, and seemed to have take, take general hold was that the Alpha, being the first letter of the alphabet, and the Omega represented opposite extremes. And so there were about three or four different, you know, good, solid, keen-minded Adventist authors and pastors and, you know, administrator types or whatever, who at different points in time said, this was the alpha, the opposite is this problem we're dealing with right now. Okay? And these positions were all built on this idea of being opposites. Um, within the lifetimes of those who are here, there are some, no doubt, uh, old enough to remember Lewis Walton's book, Omega, and his second book, Omega Two. The book Omega came out in 1980, right? It was just after, for those of you who are remembering these things, just after Desmond Ford's denial of the sanctuary doctrine in 1979. And what Walton said in his first book was that the 
Pantheism was the idea of God within everyone and that the opposite extreme was this complete externalization of an entirely forensic justification that had nothing to do with the life. And so that was his understanding of what the opposites would be. Okay, fine. He changed his position with Omega-2. I was happy to see that. Um, I don't know... I don't know why he did that, precisely, but I think he moved in the right direction. Um, in 1987, I had the task of writing an article on the subject, and it was, it was really a propitious time, because it was the, the first time that the spirit of prophecy, and just that year, just two months before, something like that, was the first time the spirit of prophecy had ever come out in any sort of a digitized format, so you could actually do like a computer search. Okay? And I know that seems dumb, but that's tremendously helpful for tracking down a bunch of different little things, okay? So I was, I was probably the first person to write on it. And I remember in 1987, I, I, I researched this. And I looked at these statements, like this last one here, the train of heresies. And I looked up every place Ellen White said train of anything. And I looked up every place where she used Alpha and Omega. And I looked up every place where she used all these things. And, and I was surprised. Because none of them contain the idea of opposites. All of them contain the idea of progression. It's like acorn and oak tree. And so I wrote my article, and I said, pantheism will come back to the Adventist church. And I was ridiculed. <laughs> Understandably so. In 1987, there was nobody that, nobody, I mean, this, it wasn't even cool. Nobody was thinking anything that direction, and, and so I was, you know, there were those who thought I was just slightly off my beam on that one, and that's fine. I'm glad they could think that at that point. Unfortunately, no one can be reasonably informed today and continue to think that. Pantheism is back. It is back with a vengeance. It is, unfortunately, easy to find within the Adventist structure. Um, I'm not going to go down that any further because my assigned topic is Christian service, okay? So if you are interested by that aspect of it, I would encourage you to check this out. Operation Iceberg. You know, I really don't like that title. I would rather have been Operation Ice Cutter or something. You know, I mean, the iceberg was a bad guy, right? That's <laughs> the one that sank the ship. So I think the naming is a little bit wacky here. Operation Iceberg presents Omega Emerging, Exposing the Emerging Church Movement in Seventh-day Adventism. That'll be two weeks from today, um, or 17th maybe is last, two weeks from last night, uh, probably whatever it is. Sacramento Central, live streamed. Okay, going to be a bunch of people, Steve Wolberg, Janet Newman, Ellen Davis, Alexa Hernandez, myself, Jerry Wagner, Stephen Bohr, Dustin Butler, all going to be present there. Um, you might want to check it out. It is a problem. It is a serious problem. Uh, I just wrote a book on it, which is why I got drug into this. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, it's a problem. I'm not going to try and explain it now because I don't, that's not my topic, okay? But what is cool is that Christian service is the only answer. Seriously. It is the only answer to dealing with this, and I'll show you why. Another statement here. The enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists, and that this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith, and engaging in a process of reorganization. Were this reformation to take place, what would result? Now, this was written in context. She's talking about Kellogg. Okay, she's talking about the pantheistic sentiments and a lot of people got caught up in Kellogg's pantheism, okay? He had a great deal of personal influence on most all of the Adventist medical workers because he trained them 
He was a generous guy. He had helped them. He'd been, he'd been a really good guy in many ways. And a lot of them had an intense level of personal loyalty to Dr. Kellogg. And they professed to see great light in this book, Living Temple. And it was one of the most amazing aspects of the whole thing is how many we managed to reclaim after that. But we lost a lot. We lost a lot. But, you know, so Kellogg was trying to remake the church. Seriously. Uh, you can find the historical traces of it. It's a lot easier to see it in the Spirit Prophecy Statements. It just kind of lays it out. But you can find the historical traces of it as well. So he's trying to do the, bring about this Great Reformation. What would the result be? Well, she gives us some clues. The principles of truth that God in his wisdom has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. Now that's about the first one that you, you know, I mean all the rest are, it, it sounds pretty significant, but it, it's not giving you much details, you know. Um, it sounds, you know, rejecting principles that have been truth, but it's not saying what would replace them. It's just saying this is going to be a, a catastrophic, you know, tsunami type of a change of, of things. But here she says a system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. Now that's, that's starting to put a little flesh onto the thing, just, just a little bit, okay? An intellectual philosophy as opposed to living faith in God and God's word. The founders of this system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. That's pretty specific. The founders of this system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded as also the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. Sounds kind of ominous. Well, without going into all the material that will be covered in two weeks up at Sacramento, um, let me just introduce you to some aspects that seem to be fulfilling this prophecy in our day today. Within the Adventist Church, and, and I'm sorry for those of you who, who you know, if, if, if this is all new to you, it's going to sound like total mumbo-jumbo Greek, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that, but there is basically a brand of pantheism that has become popular in Protestant churches, Catholic churches, and has been imported into Adventism. Different names that you've probably heard some of, whether you understand them or not. You've probably heard references to the emerging church or possibly centering prayer or contemplative prayer or meditative prayer or guided imagery or neo-linguistic programming or what else am I missing here? spiritual direction or spiritual formation all of these things are very very tightly interwoven okay don't have time to explain them all but just trust me or don't trust me but just recognize what i'm saying you don't have to trust me but you know they're bad okay understand what i'm saying i'm saying they're bad you can you can trust me or not it's up to you that's fine um the the people who are advocating this are, are, are pretty easy to identify, actually, within the Adventist Church. It's, it's, it's not hard. I wrote my whole book sitting up in Canada just poking around on Google. It's, it's, it's not hard to track this stuff down, okay? It's, it's like painfully, dreadfully easy to track it down. And it's very scary, some of it. Um, but here's an organization that seems to be fulfilling this last part here Founders, the system would go into the cities and all that sort of stuff. Now, this group is known as the Adventist Peace Fellowship. You can see the title up at the top. This is their webpage. 
It's been up for quite a few years, actually. It's not brand new or anything. What makes this interesting to me, from the perspective of this alpha and omega type of a thing, is that most of the people within Adventism who are actively involved in promoting the emergent type of stuff are, are signed on to this operation, okay? And this operation actively promotes the non-Adventist authors that support the emergent church type of stuff, okay? So there's a very, there's, there's an obvious linkage here. But I just want you to notice some of the things here. I don't know how well you can see the picture. Uh, bombed out buildings, right? Okay. Um, and down here, peacemaking and reconciliation. We support strategies of nonviolent conflict resolution and ecumenical dialogue. Okay, well, you know, it's, it's hard to pretend that bombed out buildings and dead people is a really good thing. So, you know, who could be, a, who could be opposed to peacemaking? But did you notice the ecumenical dialogue? Interesting thought. Well, that's not the only thing they're promoting. They're also in favor of caring for creation. We support environmental stewardship, conservation, and the rights of animals. Well, you know, I could go along with most of that, depending. I mean, you know, there's, you, know, you can get a little out on the wacko fringe with some of that, I'm sure. But, you know, I'd like to think I'm as willing to pack my trash out of the wilderness as the next guy, you know, type of thing. Okay, so that's... that's Cut them some slack on that one. Health and human rights. We support the right of all persons to care that honors their dignity and worth. Okay. Um, it's hard to imagine anything like health care becoming a problem. Well, okay, anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it could under some circumstances. Um, human rights seems like a good thing. You know, I'm in favor of human rights. Again, you can... It's a question of how far you take that. You know, some people might have real problems if your health care and human rights just, you know, lapped over into including the most extreme forms of abortion, for instance. That would give some people serious pause. Um, you know, some people consider euthanasia a human right, and that raises some questions in some minds. Eh, okay, whatever. This one is freedom of conscience. I like freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience is a great thing. We support liberty of conscience and free speech for persons of all beliefs, or none. Well, you know, yeah, I can, I can agree with that. But for the Adventist Peace Fellowship, it does strike me as a little weird that they put a picture of a Hindu priest up on their page. Um, incidentally, the Adventist Peace Fellowship is one of, I think the number is 37 sister peace fellowships. There's a Baptist Peace Fellowship and a Catholic Peace Fellowship and a Presbyterian Peace Fellowship and a Hindu Peace Fellowship and a Buddhist Peace Fellowship and a whatever else Peace Fellowship. So this is, they're all kind of interconnected on this. Well, let's see, what have we got here? Racial and gender equality. We support the equal human rights of all persons made in the image of God. Okay. Well, there's a, you know, I can agree with that. I know it can become contentious when you start lapping it over into certain theological issues. Ordination is one of those examples just now. Their position on that's pretty clear. This is the one that's perhaps the most creative. Sabbath economics. We support debt relief for developing nations and a preferential option for the poor. Well, that's nice. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself enough of an economist to know if those are actually good ideas for helping people, but it sounds nice to help people. But that's the Sabbath, really? Seriously? That's what you're gonna make out of the Sabbath? Um, okay. What if peacemaking goes forward on the wrong terms? What if ecology becomes pantheism? 
what a freedom of conscience promotes a, for, a full moral equivalency between belief systems. Some people would say that's freedom of conscience. You cannot have freedom of conscience unless you admit that Zen Buddhism is every bit as real a way to, to approach God as is your Seventh-day Adventism. I'm not ready to make that concession. Well, okay. The statement said, <clears throat> um, it said, leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice. This is going on now from that same statement. The leaders, the same guys who went into the cities and did this wonderful work, right? They would teach that virtue is better than vice. But God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power, which, without God, is worthless. Their foundation would be built on the sand, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. So now I'm going to do something that's probably somewhat irrational. I'm going to take a stab at being a prophet. This is a completely unauthorized exercise on my part. The Lord has not called me to the prophetic role. And so I put prophet in quotes here, okay? I'm just going to tell you what I think I see coming down the road at us. I would say that this statement is playing out in Adventism right now. Part of that is this thing, this other stuff, and you know, I just can't go into all that. I see, especially after researching that book that I just wrote, I see way too many Adventists heading down this sort of a pointless social gospel road. You know, it's one thing to do good for people. But Jesus was not a social gospelite. Just made that up. Anyhow. Um, Christ's purpose was not to go out and feed the hungry. He fed the hungry. But that wasn't his greatest purpose. His purpose was to do all the good he could for them. And if all the good he could do was give them a, a lunch, he gave them a lunch. But giving them a lunch was his way of opening the door, hopefully, that he could do more good. The problem with the social gospel is it arbitrarily sets a limit and says this is all the good we want to do. We want to feed the people. So let's make 2,500 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and go down to the slums and hand out sandwiches. Well, that's nice. Is that all you're going to do? Aren't you going to look for an opportunity to pray with somebody? Aren't you going to take along a little literature, maybe? Aren't you going to look to do the most good you can? When you put a limit on how much good you're going to do the person, you're not following Jesus' example. You're trapped in some goofy thing the devil cooked up for you. Okay. Too many people are doing that. I'm not sure how much emphasis to put on the Advanced Peace Fellowship. You know, that particular organization may or may not end up being some sort of a big player in this thing. It's just one of the, one of the things that's out there that's doing its thing. It's, it's tied in with a lot of the people. And incidentally, a lot of these names would not be necessarily foreign to you in this audience. Okay. <laughs> you are fairly geographically well-situated to see some of these things. But the mindset of unbridled ecumenical dialogue, irrational ecological leanings, united with the pantheistic sentiments and practices, is, it's, it's deadly. It's deadly. As Ellen White wrote 100 years ago, she said, once they have swallowed the bait, it is almost impossible to reclaim them. There's reasons behind that, but again, I can't go into everything. The bad news is that I don't think we're going to clean house on this one. I don't think, despite you know, what we're going to do two weeks from now in Sacramento, I, I don't think we're going to gain any great victory. Here's why. It's because of this statement. 
Look at these words. Well, how about those words right there? What is the biblical illusion that she's making here? Again, it has a song. You know the song? The wise man built his house upon a rock. And the foolish man built his house upon the sand. I can't sing. Don't worry about it. You know what's interesting about that parable? There were two houses. And there's nothing in the parable that tells us that would make any distinction between the two houses. It just says it's a house. And this is a house. It doesn't say this was a good house and this was a bad house. It doesn't say this was an expensive house or this was a cheap house. It doesn't say anything like it. It says they were houses. The houses were the same. There aren't two storms. It's one storm. And the storm hits both houses the same. The only difference is the foundation. The foundation on the sand, it says, will be swept away by storm and tempest. I'm going to argue that that storm and tempest is going to last until the end of time. And it will only be fairly late in the process that what we see developing today will be swept away by storm and tempest. I don't think, and how can I say this wisely and carefully? I don't think the voices of concerned Adventists raised two weeks from today are going to sweep away anything. I'll be honest. I think the best we can hope is that, you know, some people will tune in or, or you know, do the live streaming thing. They're going to film it. Um, I rather suspect that the DVDs will be distributed fairly widely. Some people will appreciate them. Some people will not. It's not going to sweep anything away. At most, it will raise awareness. What sweeps it away is storm and tempest. When does that come? And I'm going to say, in my role as unauthorized prophet, I'm going to say, I think it comes much later. I think what we see as the, what I would say is the best candidate that I've seen to date to claim the title Omega of Apostasy. You know, maybe there's something worse around the corner, you know? I mean, things can always get worse, right, they say? So maybe there's something else that's even worse and, and, you know, I may look back five years from now and say, boy, what I, you know, I was, I was dreaming. I thought it would be pretty good. There, you know? <laughs> Maybe it will be worse. You know? But what I see today, and I, I think, you know, for the first time in my life, I can honestly say, you know, I, I, I think this one is potentially, actually, the real deal, the Omega. Because it fits. It fits the prophetic specifications. Speculations. <laughs> it's the prophetic specifications. We're not going to sweep it away. Storm and tempest will. Let's go on here. Notice this statement. As religious aggression subverts the liberties of our nation, those who would stand for freedom of conscience will be placed in unfavorable positions. For their own sake, they should, while they have the opportunity, become intelligent in regard to disease, its causes, prevention, and cure. All those who do this will find a field of labor anywhere. There will be suffering ones, plenty of them, who will need help, not only among those of our own faith, but largely among those who know not the truth. This is the storm and tempest that I think I'm seeing. This is the storm and tempest that will eventually sweep away the misrepresentation of medical missionary work, which is in connection with the great final test.
here's what I anticipate. Take it or leave it, and, and you know, no hard feelings if you don't agree with me on this. I think we're going to see a true Christian service, and we're going to see a false Christian service. And they're not going to be that easy to tell apart. And they're going to both keep going. And the world's going to get worse. You know, I know anybody followed the news yesterday, Vice President Biden said the entire world system is fraying apart at the seams. Did you see that? <laughs> I think he's right. Yeah. You know, I'm not old enough to speak for 100 years ago or anything like that, but you know, I do dabble in history quite a bit. I don't know of any time like the present where so many issues are just balanced on a knife edge, politically, militarily, economically, medically, all these things. I mean, the world's ready to fall apart, for crying out loud. It's just like, it's just like how it's holding together is a mystery to me. Maybe I'm a pessimist. Maybe everything's fine and, you know, the bluebirds are singing and the sun's shining and we should just all be happy and, you know, just ignore all this. But, but I'm thinking it's a mess out there. It's just my opinion. I think it's going to get progressively worse. As religious aggression subverts the liberties. As. It's a process. It goes on. Things get worse. Tomorrow it's going to be worse than today. The next day it's going to be worse. By Thursday the whole thing's going to be a mess. You know? it's, it's, going to be, it's going to keep getting worse. And these two streams of what we might call humanitarian endeavor, both claiming the, what would I say, the endorsement of the divine. These two streams are going to keep going forward. But there's going to come a point at which things are so bad, it's fallen apart so much, that Neither stream has the wherewithal to do any more. It's going to come to a point where it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, where it's every man for himself. And you don't have any more money. You can't spare any more time. You don't have anything more to give. And at that point, these guys will stop. And storm and tempest will sweep away their foundation. And at that point, these guys keep on. They don't have anything to keep on with. But they keep on. Why do they keep on? Because he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. And he will repay. Remember those statements we looked at? Those Bible verses, those promises on Friday night? God will supply our need if we are supplying others. If we're working for Him. Like the disciples. Was that last night? Was that this morning? That was this morning, I think, wasn't it? The bread multiplied in their hands. Was that this morning? I don't know. I, I forgot when that was. Anyhow, Jesus gave the bread to the disciples and the, it, 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 it expanded in their hands and they passed it out. And when they were done passing it out, then they all sat down and they ate too. It's an interesting thing. You know, the message to Laodicea encourages us to get ISAV so we can see evil under any guise. White raiment, the robe of Christ's righteousness. And the gold tried in the fire. And Ellen White identifies the gold tried in the fire. She says it's faith and love combined and love takes the precedence. You know, I'd always looked at that, and, and I'm not saying that this is, I'm wrong or, or that this is wrong or that I've rejected this idea, but I always looked at that and I just simply said, okay, love and faith and love is the most important of the two. But you know, the word precedence can also mean first in chronological order. It precedes, okay? And that's kind of what I see in this. God's people, I believe, there will be suffering ones, plenty of them. They're going to be called to minister, a work identical to that given to Christ we read this morning. They'll be called to minister. There'll be suffering ones, plenty of them, and they will give at a time when it's every man for himself, and the world will look at them and say, how can you do that? 
how can you keep loving other people? And they will give, and they will say, the world will say, what is this love? And they will give, and they will come to the point where they have absolutely nothing more to give, and the world will say, what can they do now? And they give, and they give, and they give, because Christ is supplying them. And I, to me, that's a beautiful picture. I can turn to my brother now and say, you can live the way I'm living if you want to. God will supply your needs just as he is supplying my needs. All you have to do is be willing to pass it on. Love takes the precedence. And there comes a point when there's no way to go forward except by faith. And then you move forward with no earthly support. When did we ever think we were supposed to have earthly support in the first place? <laughs> so what can we do in the meantime? Unless there are those who will devise means of turning to account the time, strength, and brains of the church members, there will be a great work left undone that ought to be done. Haphazard work will not answer. We want men in the church who have ability to develop in the line of organizing and giving practical work to young men and women in the line of relieving the wants of humanity. We're talking Christian service here. And working for the salvation of the souls of men, women, youth, and children. This is not humanitarian service. This is Christian service because you're relieving the, relieving the wants of humanity but looking for the chance to minister their souls. It's a complete package. It's the minister and the ministerial and the medical combined like it's supposed to be. Because so little effort has been made to engage young men and women in the missionary work which must be done to bring the gospel invitation to all, there is but one worker where there should be a hundred. The indifference which is manifested for suffering humanity is charged against churches and families and individuals. This is a fascinating statement. The light God has given on health reform is for our salvation and the salvation of the world. Now, I get a real kick out of the one particular little weird ball argument that comes up type of thing. You, know? you get to talking about healthful living and such things. And, you know, I won't say it always happens, but it's not infrequent that someone will, you know, finally, you know, kind of lean back in their chair and say, well, yes, yes, all that's well and good, you know, but it's, it's not a salvational issue. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It says so. <laughs> it says so. The light God has given in other form is for our salvation and the salvation of the world. It's, a, it's an evangelistic tool. It's for the salvation of the world. And of course, if we don't understand it, if we're not practicing it, we may not be the ones who are going to be able to use it very well. But it's there for us. Christian service. The combining of Christ-like ministry for the body and Christ-like ministry for the soul is the... I think I'm one slide ahead of myself. I probably shouldn't be quoting that. <laughs> we'll come to that statement in a second. Let's go on. The work that the great teacher did in connection with his, his disciples is the example we are to follow. It is only by an unselfish interest in those in need of help that we can give a practical demonstration of the truths of the gospel. Only. It's only, Right? The Lord will give you success in this work, for the gospel is the power of God into salvation, when it's interwoven with the practical life, when it is lived and practiced. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation of the gospel. Notice that word. It is only by an unselfish interest that we can give a practical demonstration. You can't do it any other way. That's what only means. And notice this word. The. Not a true interpretation. It is the true interpretation. The definite article. The, the, whatever, how you want to pronounce it. Okay. This is the only way it's going to be done. 
And so, <clears throat> I commend to you Christian service. You know, there's a statement you might have heard that says that, you know, soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines but medical missionary work. You know, and I used to think, oh, man, what sort of terrible circumstances will it be that will, will, will strip us of all the opportunities we had and, and, and leave us with nothing but medical missionary work. You know, I don't look at it that way anymore. That's just the first time we actually get it right. Because that's the only kind of work we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be following Jesus' example. And he went around from place to place healing people and preaching the gospel. So, what do I do? I commend to you Christian service. I commend to you, learn, some, learn the skills, you know, as religious aggression subverts our, or as aggression, however that statement said, you know, subverts our religious liberties, for their own sake, they should become familiar with disease, its cause, prevention, and cure. She says 27, 28 times, something like that. Learn the simple remedies. Why learn simple remedies? I think because when it comes push to shove, you're not going to have any complicated ones. You know? when, when, when everything falls apart, you'll be lucky to have a, a pan to put some hot water in. Okay? Learn the simple remedies. That may be all you'll ever have left at some point. On the issue of the Alpha and the Omega, I commend to you becoming informed. Two weeks from now, SAC Central, might want to watch the live stream. DVDs probably be available. Might want to watch those. I mentioned I wrote a book. You could read that if you want. But... If you read the one on the left, which is all about the omega of apostasy, please, please, please make sure you read the one on the right. I wrote that one first. That's the one I love. Because this one has all the answers to all the problems that that one talks about. And this is the only answer to the problems that one talks about. Because our options are going to go really narrow down. And the only thing we're going to have left to do is either join Satan's side or do what God's been asking us to do. I think that's better represented there. It's not a perfect book, I'm sure. There's a ton to be learned. There's a ton of problems, no doubt. But it's the best I know how to do. Okay. Christian service. Pretty good idea. I recommend it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for religious liberties which have not yet been entirely subverted. We thank you for peace and prosperity, and we pray that you will give us wisdom that these things would not become a snare to us and deceive us and lead us astray, but that they would be tools that we might use in your service for the benefit of ourselves, for the benefit of the household of faith, for the benefit of the thousands around us who have no inkling of the light and knowledge and blessing which has been given to us. Open doors of opportunity, we pray. Give us wisdom and guidance. In Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.